This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at afsp.org slash talkawaythedark. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Today marks one year since George Floyd's murder at the hands of Minneapolis police. At 8.20 p.m. from different camera footage, George is now lying on the ground. Here is where Derek had his knee on George's neck. We can hear George say, please, I can't breathe. Please, man, please, I can't breathe. His death amplified the Black Lives Matter movement around the world and sparked conversations about racism and policing in classrooms, workplaces, and between friends and family. So the question we're talking about today is how to talk about race. We don't like to talk about race because it makes us feel uncomfortable. And I found that there's two big obstacles to this conversation. White folks get too guilty and defensive and black folks get too mad. Sadie, how would you describe the word race? Skin color. And then how would you describe the word racism? Not treating people fairly just because of their skin color. Because of their skin color? Mm -hmm. And is that fair? No. What kind of conversations did Floyd's murder spark among your family and friends? Did it change your perspective on racism and policing? Here with more is Ariane Nettles, journalism lecturer at Northwestern University's Medill School. Ariane, welcome back. Hi, Sasha. Also with us is Wendy Bohan from Maryland. The video of Floyd's death led to weeks of conversations with her family members, and those talks continue today. Hi, Wendy. Welcome to Reset. Hi. Thanks for having me. Now, first, I'd love to get both of your reactions to the fact that we are here at the one-year mark. Take me back to day one when you first heard about Floyd's murder. Uh, You first, Ariane. I think that it still feels so clear. You know, I'm thinking about that week, how I think many of us already felt so kind of um, stuck in place, you know, at the start of the pandemic. We already were kind of fearful of a lot. I remember I already wasn't sleeping because of that. And that, you know, when I first heard about what happened to George Floyd, I just instantly broke down in the tears. It just felt so heavy. Like, I think that's just the word I just remember the most, just, just feeling heavy from from it all. Wendy, what was May 25th, 2020 like for you? I was actually at my parents' house, and we had put the kids to bed, and I was doing a puzzle with my mom at the kitchen table, and the video came on. And I'll never forget watching that video and standing up with my mom and walking towards the television and and seeing the horror in her face that I knew was in my face and just thinking, there's no more pretending. There's no more pretending that this isn't a problem. We're watching a man being murdered on television. This is not okay. And it, it changed, 
I think the perspective of a lot of people and I'm, you know, it's been a year, there's been a lot of forward momentum. I hope it keeps going. We've done some, but we certainly haven't, haven't done enough. Something interesting you just said, you said there's no more pretending that this isn't the problem. Had you sort of lived a life or, or watched folks around you live a life of sort of brushing this under the rug, racism? Yeah, I grew up in the South. There's things you don't talk about in um, in my house. You know, you didn't talk about religion. You didn't talk about politics. And God forbid you talk about racism. And so while my sister and my cousins and I were having those conversations, we never broached those topics with our elders. And this was that moment where we said enough, enough. We have to talk about these things, even though they're uncomfortable, even though it, it breaks our unspoken Southern protocol, enough with that. So that was when the conversations really started for us. And it's now been one year. Ariane, you wrote a piece that was uh, reflecting on this anniversary uh, for Zora. That's a publication from Medium for Black women. Can you tell us more about the piece and what else you're reflecting on today? For the piece, I looked at, for one, you know, the idea that what has changed, has anything changed? And I think that, you know, we have seen some legislative action. We've seen, um, I mean, whether or not you can argue if some of those bills are enough, you know, uh, but we've seen people try. We have also seen some things that are harder to possibly quantify, like, for example, people really talking about the criminal justice system as a whole and what is the role of a district attorney and how does this all work and what are my rights, you know, as an individual. So certain things are a little bit less able to maybe put a number on to see if that's changed. But also I think the biggest part or the biggest takeaway from working on this piece has really been that we are tired (laughs) We are exhausted. We do not feel as if we have any relief from this, right? And I, you know, I talked to a lot of really amazing people who chatted about it, but um, Dr. Thema Bryant-Davis, you know, she, she was, she put me on to the term racial battle fatigue and how, you know, that is like this this big exhaustion because we have event after event, assault after assault. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like she told me, like there have been so many people before George Floyd and then us knowing that there are going to be people after him, you know, and we've seen that. We've seen it happening just miles away from where it happened with yeah. George Floyd. And so I think it's just that exhaustion and that desire to lift the weight and to try to heal was like my biggest, I guess it ended up being a really big part of the piece. What was that term? Battle fatigue? Yes, racial battle fatigue. Racial battle fatigue. Let's jump down to the phones. We have Louie on the line in Rogers Park. Hi, Louie. Welcome to Reset. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so what's on your mind today? So I remember back when police shootings of unarmed black men um, was first starting to be talked about. I was in my sophomore year at Lane Tech, and my best friend, who was black, had to explain to me that there's racism in our policing system. And I remember just not wanting to accept it and arguing and the exasperation on her face. I had never seen that before with her. She was so clearly frustrated with me and was so patient, though. And so then all these years later, when George Floyd was killed, I remember talking on the phone with her. And it it took a while, but I I came around to thanking her for (laughs) 
convincing me of the reality back then because I hate now that she had to do that work, being patient with me when I was so clearly didn't understand. And I wish that she hadn't had to do that that work. And uh, but I'm so grateful that we she had those conversations with me as hard as they obviously were for her because I wouldn't be who I am today if it wasn't for those conversations she had. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that, Louis. I appreciate that. Our next caller is Tony in Chatham. Hi, Tony. Hi there. Um, I'm so glad that you had these uh, speaker on before, and uh, you know, who had to be midwife through racism and understanding that when she was in high school, because I literally had called and said I have no faith in the ability of white people in Chicago or Illinois to ever do the right thing by black people. We always have to change laws and change, like, the ways that we're doing things, but we couch it in, like, oh, it's just great for society, when there have to be specific reparations financially as well as laws made to black people for what the horrible things white people have allowed to happen in the name of themselves and their resource hoarding. And so I'm glad that she had that midwifing. I can't do that anymore. I refuse to help any white person understand that they benefit tremendously every day just from their whiteness, and they owe us. They owe us for our music. They owe us for our dance. They owe us for our lives, and they won't give it back. Thank you, Tony. I appreciate your call today. Wendy, I want to come back to you. We've talked about this after Floyd's death. You talked about your thoughts on racism and police brutality with your family members, and it was the first time, right? So tell us mm-hmm. a bit more about what that was like for you, and, and more importantly, I'd love to know how they responded. Well, we have had the privilege of not having to think about it, and it is an incredible privilege, as the, as the last caller just pointed out. And so, you know, I remember sitting in the backyard with my mother and one of my aunts, and we were talking about... Um, kneeling at football games. And I said, now, now do you understand why that's not the problem? Why taking that knee isn't the problem? It's the knee on George Floyd's neck that's the problem. And my aunt was like, I never, I never thought about it that way. And she really has made a huge change. And now she's out marching in Black Lives Matter movements. My girl got on Facebook and all the time she's arguing with the church ladies on Facebook about racism, about why Black Lives Matter, about defunding the police. My 76-year-old aunt, who was a Republican her entire life, is 100% for defunding the police. I mean, it's a, it's a true 180. And so while those conversations were difficult and there were tears shed on both sides, I mean, that's very little to ask given what we have put people through, given the fact that, you know, I've had the privilege in my life of not worrying about those things, of being able to be ignorant of those things. And no more, no more. For those who have been fighting for racial equity, the kind of reckoning that we've seen over this past year, it was a long time coming. Ariane, why do you think it took so long? The only difference between this, you know, because I think we started to say more about, like, you know, this was caught on film. We've had other deaths of, you know, killings of Black people by police caught on tape and shared widely. You know, those of us in news who are forced to watch every single horrific one, we know how many there are out there. 
the only difference this time, it just truly feels like that we were all still. We were all in the house, you know? And so people who perhaps have wanted to look away in the past weren't able to, you know? But even then, you know, we see as the months went on how support for Black Lives Matter and, like, that movement has dropped back to, you know, where it was before this incident. So I think that, you know, overall, a lot of people want to applaud some of the work that happened um, or, you know, people coming out for the first time. But I think it's also equally important to, you know, hold people accountable that they realize that this is still going on. The work doesn't stop here. If you are supporting something, um, you, you can't just stop because we have seen that dramatic drop in support. And really the people who are left to still carry that burden are black people. Let's hear now from Carter in Lakeview. Hi, Carter. Welcome to Reset. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Uh, so I'm a graduating senior at Northwestern, and uh, witnessing George Floyd's murder had ripple effects on the student-led communities here. It finally began the conversation about private policing at institutions like Northwestern and UFC, University of Chicago, that have little to no accountability for how they disproportionately treat black, brown, and poor students. The history of policing on college campuses has its roots in the Nixon-era wave of legislation against student protests by students of color, against those frameworks of whiteness, and we haven't addressed it yet. Uh, it breaks my heart that as a primarily white institution and in a department like theater that is disproportionately white, we haven't really dug into what it means to hold our institutions accountable to admit more students of color, undocumented students, and low-income first-gen students. Mm -hmm. Thanks for bringing up that point, Carter. Appreciate your call. I want to jump now to Sarah in the South Loop. Hi, Sarah. I am just bringing up that one thing that happened out of the murder of George Floyd was that globally people saw policing as a tool that really failed to create public safety. Um, and so I'm a member of the steering committee of the defund CPD campaign. And really that campaign brought out of that moment of people recognizing the police are just not creating public safety very well at all. And so, you know, our campaign is to divest 75% of CPD's money of their annual budget and then invest that approximate $1.2 billion into community health services and life-affirming institutions um, as a way to actually create public safety in people's neighborhoods. Um, people saw that, like, policing made people scared and actually is a violent, lethal form and um, that actually the safest neighborhoods have the most resources. That was just something that yeah. I think was really powerful that came out of George Floyd's murder. Thank you for sharing, Sarah. Let's hear now from Edie in Edgewater. Hi, welcome to Reset. Um, I am from Edgewater and from Minneapolis and soon to be Downers Grove. So um, I've got a really diverse group of people in my life. And the thing that's been breaking my heart, really breaking my heart, is the way this horrible tragedy has really polarized people and drawing attention away from the real issues. You know, the police in my life are feeling put upon and judged and disrespected, and they went into this job because it was a really honorable profession and they really cared desperately. On the other hand, black and brown and Asian people have been really treated horribly, and you, know, you can't 
you can't overstate how terrible that is. But with all the disinformation and lies, um, it's been really easy to believe whatever you want and overstate. And I just don't think that the conversation is getting better. I think it's not taking us where we need to be. Um, and talking about defunding police is, a, is language that I think makes it harder for us to get what we need, which is the retraining of police so they can everyone can get the kind of policing I've received in Edgewater, which has been great. Yeah. And that's what I want for the people in my hometown in Minneapolis and what I want for my neighbors in the south side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. So. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, very valid point. Thank you. And and with that in mind, Ariane, we talk about the conversations that are being sparked by Mr. Floyd's death. What what can we do to collectively keep those conversations going, whether it's with our friends and family or with our colleagues? I think that one thing is that we need to make sure that we are always – reading and listening and, you know, before we talk. And I think that that has been, you know, really helpful for me. So we talk a lot, you know, like Sarah called in and she talked about defunding the police and, you know, how many of us besides the activists and scholars who have been studying this forever, the rest of us didn't really understand that term, but it makes a lot of sense now, you know? And so I think that it is important that as we engage in these conversations, that we are educated on what people have studied and that we also are listening. You know, if people are saying that an increased police presence in their neighborhoods does not make them feel safe and the data also supports that, then we know, mm-hmm. hey, what we're doing is not working. We need to discuss something new. So I think that sometimes what happens is there is a desire to maybe not want to really listen to people and what they are saying and what they are feeling, you know. The language around, like, for example, defunding the police, like, I mean, that is the language. Like, no, people mean defund the police. When they say defund the police, they mean give less funds to the police, right? Like, and so we need to make sure that we are understanding what that could look like and what could happen. And so then we can have a little bit better conversations without, you know, maybe telling each other that, the words that we use aren't good enough or, and you know, it can feel as if people are invalidating your experiences, your beliefs and what you want right. for your community. Yeah. As you mentioned, um, so as, just, as you mentioned data, Ariana, I'm looking here, a new poll from NPR and PBS NewsHour says only 17% of Americans actually believe that race relations are better today than they were a year ago. A uh, quick question, Wendy, because, you know, there might be someone listening right now to this program who, hasn't had any of these kinds of conversations with their friends or family. So based on your experience, quick advice that you would give to them. Where's a good starting point? I think that what she was just saying is absolutely right. You have to listen. Go in and understand what their concerns are and recognize that they have life experience that they're drawing from to come to those conclusions. But then politely offer your own experience and make sure that you are uh, amplifying and elevating the voices of people who aren't often heard. So, you know, people speak from their own experience, but that's such a limited amount of of space in the world, right? And so if you can bring other experiences, individual people and what they've experienced, that can be very powerful because, you know, our families are generally loving and caring and they care what we think and they're interested in having conversations. And so we just have to bite the bullet, make sure that we're respectful, but bring in 
elements that they may not have been exposed to before and give them uh, resources that they can use to learn about things afterwards. Let's hear now from Margaret on the West Side. Hi, Margaret. Welcome to Reset. Hello. Racism is a structure. It's 99% business and 1% emotion. And America's biggest problem is that we are so fixated on how we feel. If you come and burn down my house, you go to jail and you owe me money. It's that simple. It's not complicated. We want to keep talking about how we feel when white fear is all imaginative. We have people going to insurrect the White House, but they were just, you know, doing things. We want to police black lives, black money, black time, like we're runaway slaves, and we're not. But we don't have the power to say, you know, we police the police. They have a job. Being black is not a job. Being a police officer is a job. Being mayor is a job. They're the ones that be held to accountability to what the citizens want. We don't want you to do this anymore, so don't do it anymore because it's a job. You don't get to run rap shop over everybody's life and then be mad because people are scrutinizing you at your job. What other job can you have where you do whatever you want and it's okay because your job is hard? That's not how that works. And that's that's the whole problem is that we want to talk about how do black people feel? How do white people feel? How do police feel? It's not about how police feel. They have a job. And they work for us. And that's it. But I'm black. I don't work for you. You don't get to say what I do, when I do, how I do it, what I say about it. I'm a free citizen. Margaret, thanks for that call. Wendy, George Floyd's death made us think not just about racism, but about anti-racism. You went on a journey to find out what that meant. So can you tell us? What did you learn? Well, I had spent a long time advocating for for women's rights, for the LGBTQ community. And for whatever reason, I just had not um, spent a lot of time thinking about racism. And I, I cringe now because all of those systems are connected, right? And so I, I really decided after uh, George Floyd's murder that I was going to try very hard to learn everything I could because I don't have those lived experiences. And so I read books and I had conversations and I spent a lot of time trying to listen to the people, to listen to their their lived experiences, to listen to what it is to be black in America today, what it was to be black in America 50 years ago, to try and understand. And then recognizing that learning isn't enough, you know, then you have to act. And there is fear that you're going to do something wrong, you're going to say something wrong, that you know, you're going to somehow do harm, but you just have to act. It's not enough to just learn the things and have the book club or whatever. So I've been working very hard to, to act and push where I have power in my community, you know, at my work, within my family. So that's, that's kind of been my journey and where I am now, continuing to learn, continuing to listen, but also continuing to push and advocate for change. Very important. Here's Evie in Lake County. Hi, Evie. Welcome to Reset. Hi. How are you? Doing well. Thank you so much for giving us a call. What would you like to share with us? Well, I wanted to respond also to a previous caller who was saying that, you know, her experience with the police was a good one. She didn't like the word defund the police or the concept. And I just wanted to share that, you know, I was a police officer for six years in Lake County, and what I saw 
in the 90s when I was a police officer has not changed. What do you mean? Uh, the the over policing of the black community, which leads to violent uh, interactions with black folks, and and I actually I watched it, I spoke up against it, I suffered a lot of harassment because of it, and I left my job because of it because I spoke up. So it's not training that's needed. There's uh, services for the community. There should be less policing within uh, of those resources uh, in policing in the black community and more for services. Mm-hmm. Thanks uh, for your call, Evie. Let's squeeze in another caller, Adrian from Albany Park. Hi, Adrian. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So uh, I'm Latinx, uh, younger Latinx in my family. And, uh, you know, when George Floyd was murdered, it, I started conversations with my family at large. And I found that anti-blackness and colorism in my family was kind of really prevalent. Um, It was really hard to discuss these things because, you know, older people in my family would make comments disparaging George Floyd for whatever reason. And uh, I would kind of call that out and say, you know, it's kind of racist that you're holding them up to a higher standard when, you know, being black, like an earlier caller mentioned, it's not a job, you know, and, and George Floyd did nothing wrong in like, you know, just being who he was. And even if he committed a crime, it doesn't mean he should be dead. And when I called that out, my entire family kind of made me a pariah and said that I was being disrespectful of my old, of the older people in my family. And it just kind of, kind of really brought to light this issue of how deep-seated anti-blackness and colorism is or can be in the Latinx community. Um, yeah. No one really stood up for me, even people my age and my family, to say, mm-hmm. hey, you know what, you, the point that you're making is correct, or or I can see where you're coming from, anything like that. It was just about me being, quote-unquote, respectful to pe- older people in my family, and it kind of stopped the conversation about racism altogether. I'm sorry to hear that, Adrian, and thank you so much for, for being open and sharing that with us. Uh, we just got a few seconds left, Ariane. Let's go back to that term you brought up earlier, racial battle fatigue, right? We've seen this over and over again. We're having all these conversations. How can we find healing from this? Not only healing on an individual level, but really, you know, taking care because saying I deserve that rest and and is, is also a form of justice, you know, that goes against racism and the idea that you have to always be working against it and be prepared that you also need to rest up for, I guess, the battle, really, um, but also that you are focused on and that we are focused on a collective healing, right? How can we heal as a community and really think about what our work in that lens and through that lens that what is good for the whole, what is good for us, um, and and that that is really essential. And sometimes that is standing up to mistruths and things like this where people are allowed to share Um, their experiences and really share their stories. That's Ariane Nettles, and with us was Wendy Bohan. Ariane and Wendy, thank you so much for joining us today. And that's today's Reset. Yes, sometimes we have difficult conversations around tough topics, but really hearing each other, seeing each other, understanding each other's experiences, that's how we move forward and build a better future for everyone. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please take a few seconds to give us a rating and review. It really helps others find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again tomorrow.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.